Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on whistling. In the last episode, we talked a bit about how whistling works physically, what happens when you're creating a sort of resonator cavity within the mouth. Uh, we also talked about the whistle speech of the Mazateco languages in Oaxaca in Mexico. And I wanted to start off today's episode by talking about some other examples of whistled languages and some of the common characteristics between them. Because, of course, uh, the Mazateco whistle speech is not the only example of a whistled language that carries information. In fact, I was looking at a paper by an author named Julian Meyer called Environmental and Linguistic Typology of Whistled Languages in the Annual Review of Linguistics 2021. So, it's a very recent paper. Uh, and according to Meyer, there are reports of more than 80 languages around the world that contain a whistled lexicon, and about half of those have been confirmed by formal studies and published recordings. So really solid documentation of at least 40 or so whistled languages around the world. Uh, and so I think it's worth mentioning a few more examples of these and describing how they work and seeing what we can compare and contrast with them. 
So one uh, example I was reading about was in a really interesting 2017 article in BBC Travel by Elliot Stein. And the, the story here goes like this. In Greece, there is a remote mountain village called Antia, which is found on the, uh, the southern eastern coast of the Greek island of Evia in the Aegean Sea. And within this village, there has long been a whistle-based language called Spheria, which allows speakers to communicate across great distances. And it seems to have been passed down from parents to children among the shepherds and the farmers of the village for literally thousands of years, for more than 2,000 years. To read from Stein here, quote, But in the last few decades, Antia's population has dwindled from 250 to 37, and as older whistlers lose their teeth, many can no longer sound Spheria's sharp notes. Today, there are only six people left on the planet who can still speak this unspoken language. Now, this was five years ago as of this recording, so I don't know how that number six has changed since then. There there are descriptions of some efforts to try to teach it to more people. Um, uh, but, uh, of course, whenever you're talking about a language with that few speakers, it it's certainly extremely endangered. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, this is considered one of the most endangered languages in the world. Now, apparently, the existence of this language, Spheria here, was not documented anywhere in the outside world until the year 1969, when a plane crashed in the mountains nearby, and there was a rescue team that was attempting to locate the pilot, and they reported hearing strange, melodious whistling echoing through the hillsides, and this led to investigation and brought the language to the attention of the media and to academics. Uh, So a big question here is where does a language like this come from? Linguists do seem to agree that it dates back to ancient times. It's been around for a long time, but exactly how it was created is less certain. Uh, And apparently local legends abound. So one story I came across, this was described in, in some detail in a documentary piece on PBS NewsHour that was about Spheria. And it claimed that the language was invented about 2,500 years ago, not by Greeks, but by Persians after they were defeated at the Battle of Salamis. So Salamis was a battle in 480 BCE during the Persian invasion of Greece under Xerxes the Great. And uh, so Salamis was a, it was a naval battle where the coalition of Greek city-states was able to fight off and defeat the larger Persian allied fleet. Uh, and I think this is widely considered the battle or one of the battles that turned the tide of the war in favor of the Greek defenders and pushed back the, the Persian invasion. But anyway, the legend about the whistle speech goes that the Persian survivors of the battle, I guess they were, uh, you know, their their ship was sank or or defeated in some way, and they they managed to swim to shore on the island of Evia, where they had to survive hiding in the mountains inhabited by uh, hostile native Greeks. And one way they avoided detection was by coming up with a a way of speaking in whistles that would sound just like the birds, so they could Hmm. they could communicate with each other but their speech would not be intelligible and and in many ways would probably not even be detected. Oh, wow. But that that story has a kind of legendary quality. I'm yeah. not sure how much uh, there is behind that. So, but but it's a great story nonetheless. And, and Stein cites some other 
local legends as well. Some residents believe it was invented during the Byzantine Empire by locals who wanted a secret way to communicate that would elude the understanding of pirates and people from hostile nearby villages. And so a common theme here seems to be the idea that somehow this language was created to be a a secret way of communicating, to allow the locals to communicate across distance and understand each other uh, without other people detecting or understanding what they were saying. Hmm. Now, the author of this BBC travel piece describes visiting the village and spending time with with the handful of people there who still use the whistle language. And they uh, apparently use it in many of the same scenarios described in that paper on the Mazateco whistle speech that I talked about in the last episode. A big scenario of use seems to be communicating across great distance on the mountainside and sort of greeting or summoning people from far away. And Stein cites a Greek linguist named Demetra Hengen who studies Spheria, and she says that Spheria is in some sense a whistled version of spoken Greek, where uh, specific whistled tones correspond to specific phonetic syllables or letters, and you can build words out of them. Uh, Now, again, this is another way that it's similar to the Mazateco example, because in both cases, the the whistled language is not like a totally independent, unique language. Instead, it is in some way adapting an existing spoken language to whistles. And of course, that would uh, lean us more towards the, the Greek origin story as opposed to the Persian one. Yeah, I thought about that, but I I don't know if it actually informs that one way or another. But uh, yeah, I I had the same intuition, at least. Hmm. So one of the most remarkable things about Spheria, uh, again, similar to the Mazateco whistle speech example, is that it is intelligible at a great distance. You can understand messages in Spheria up to about four kilometers away uh, on on this mountainous terrain, which uh, Hingen says is about 10 times farther than you can usually understand speech, loud speech or shouting. And I saw that number of the the 10 times distance multiplier mentioned in other sources such as a a Cambridge University press paper that I looked at. But uh, there's a great part in this article where Stein quotes a local shop owner named Maria uh, Kafalas, who tells a story about some of the, the social opportunities offered by the whistle speech. And so her story goes like this, quote, One night, a man was in the mountains with his sheep when it started snowing. He knew that somewhere deep in the mountains there was a beautiful girl from Antia with her goats. So he found a cave, built a fire, and whistled to her to come, keep warm. She did, and that's how my parents fell in love. <laughs> well, that is a better ending uh, than something like, and then uh, the descendants of, of, of Persian soldiers slaughtered him in the woods. Uh, <laughs> so I will say that much. Yeah, and then the Greeks finally came for revenge. <laughs> yeah, I continue to just have a lot of questions about the, the the Persian origin theory. It just seems like it. It seems, uh, and I could I could be missing something uh, major here, but it seems like it begs more questions than it answers. Well, yeah, as as I said, uh, th- it sounds more like legend to me than like an, an strongly evidence based explanation. Yeah, but, it's, it's uh, like one I, degree I, away from being a full blown ghost story. <laughs> 
But, but, so I've described two examples here of whistled language in detail. And as I mentioned before, there are many others around the globe. There are something like 80-ish that have been reported. Somewhere around 40 of them are very well documented. So an obvious question to ask is, what do these languages have in common? What causes a whistled language to arise? Uh, So I was looking at a few sources here. One of them is that paper in uh, the Annual Review of Linguistics by Julian Meyer I already mentioned. Another is uh, an article in Smithsonian Magazine from 2021 by Bob Holmes, which cites that paper and uh, summarizes some other research in this area. For example, focusing on uh, a whistled variant of Spanish that is used in the Canary Islands, on the the mountainous islands of uh, La Gomera and El Hierro, uh, that are both in the Canary Islands. And that paper by Julian Meyer uh, tries to gather together all of these uh, languages and say, okay, are there common uh, topographical or or sort of uh, geographical features that these languages tend to have in common, and he finds, yes, indeed, there are. Almost all of the whistled languages occur in two different types of environments, either in mountainous terrains or rugged mountains, or in dense vegetation, like dense forest or dense savanna. So why would it be those two places, mountains or in dense vegetation? Well, to focus on mountains first, Meyer writes that in mountainous terrain, settlements and the people living in the mountainous terrain tend to be much more scattered across larger distances that are more difficult to traverse quickly than people in other types of, uh, of t- uh, topographical settings. So, uh, he, uh, so Meyer writes, quote, In El Hierro and La Gomera in the Canary Islands, in the region around uh, Kushkoi in Turkey, in the High Altus, or in the Pyrenees near the village of Os, Two points only 500 meters apart can easily represent an hour in walking time. Thus, whistled forms of languages serve as soon as the spoken forms become ineffective, between 40 and 100 meters, depending on terrain. Whistles can be heard up to 7 kilometers away in some valleys. Okay, so the idea here is that in mountainous terrain, you have the problem of People are often situated farther apart from each other, and those distances to cross are difficult to cross. They take a long time. So if you need to communicate, actually coming to be close enough together that you could understand each other by shouting, would that's a long, that's a big time investment. So it's actually worth your time to learn a whistle speech that will carry better across longer distances and save you all of that climbing and walking time. Now, what about uh, the forests or the dense vegetation? Well, here, uh, Meyer writes, quote, The vegetation in dense tropical forests and savannas restricts visual contact and limits the propagation of sound. In such contexts, whistled speech frequencies are also well shielded against acoustic energy loss due to reverberation, which is particularly important in densely vegetated environments because the whistled frequencies belong to the most favorable frequency window, ranging from 1 to 3 kilohertz, within which reverberation in forests varies less with distance. In dense vegetation, whistled language facilitates the coordination of individuals during group movements, especially during hunting and fishing. Whistling also allows human dialogue to go undetected by animals, blending in with natural sounds since many animal species also use whistling. 
Other advantages are that whistles are easy to locate and difficult for strangers to recognize, especially other tribes, even those that speak different dialects of the same language. Whistled communications are used for uh, distances from about 10 meters up to 500 meters, depending on the density of vegetation. Okay, so there there are a lot of advantages in the forest or thick savanna. Uh, so the idea is that, of course, whistling speech allows you to communicate without being able to see each other. Sight lines are limited by the uh, by the vegetation itself, but also whistling just carries better in the forest. It uh, it propagates better through the forest without being drowned out by the sort of the the reverberation effects of having all that foliage there, uh, and it also seems to pierce through ambient sound much better. And Holmes also summarizes uh, the, some of these advantages of whistling in, in the uh, uh, Smithsonian paper, saying that uh, if you're good at whistling and, and you've been practicing this all your life, sometimes you can reach 120 decibels with a whistle, which is loud. That's like – he compares it to a, a car horn. It says it's actually louder than a car horn. Um, and that whistles pack almost all of that energy into the perfect frequency range, the most piercing frequency range, which Holmes says is between one to four kilohertz. Uh, Meyer said between one to three kilohertz, but it's roughly the same space, um, which Holmes says is above the pitch of most ambient noise. And this is interesting because I was thinking about um, why do we keep noticing that whistling sounds, the ones made uh, by humans, are similar to bird song? Well, one thing that occurs to me here is that birdsong is probably shaped by natural selection to propagate through vegetation and to cut through ambient noise from the environment. So, so as to be clear, you know, to be clear and audible at a distance where maybe a potential mate could hear it. So whistle speech probably sounds like birdsong having similar frequency ranges because similar forces are shaping them. In the case of birds, it would be evolution. And in the case of humans, it would be people intentionally selecting whatever noise they are able to make with their bodies that is the clearest at the longest distance, cutting through ambient noise and, and uh, losing the least energy to reverberation in the forest. And that just happens to be the whistle that sounds like a bird. Yeah, yeah, this is this is interesting to think think about. I mean, on one hand, uh, I'm a quiet whistler. My whistler, my whistle is not very loud, and therefore it's, it can be a little surprising when I encounter someone who has a very loud whistle, and you, you're reminded just how loud a whistle can be. Uh, so that's important to, to factor into all of this. And, uh, and another connection that came up in some of the research I was doing was that uh, you you end up encountering this whole realm of um, of non-linguistic sounds uh, that humans can make uh, that can be used to communicate ideas or to, to gain attention, etc. And you, you also see things like yodeling thrown in there. Yodeling, mm -hmm. um, uh, also a, a, an art form, if you will, or a performance art, a, a sound that developed that also had to do with communicating or calling animals or, or communicating with other herdsmen across, uh, across long distances in the wild. When you're trying to speak normal phonemes like we're using in words here, I think a lot of that information probably easily gets lost at a distance. Like you might be able to hear that somebody is shouting, but you can't hear the difference between consonants. Are they making a T sound or a K sound? Like, I, I don't know, at a distance mm -hmm. that, that kind of all disappears. 
but if you're if you're judging more on sequences of pitches, yeah, then suddenly the confusion created by distance is reduced. Yeah, yeah. Just and just yelling doesn't necessarily cut it, right? Because if you can't, if your if particular words are not going to be overheard, then you might end up having to do something like just some sort of rhythmic barking. And if you're doing some sort of rhythmic barking, well, why not further uh, develop that and get somewhere, get to somewhere where it is yodeling, or you sh- shift over into a whistling, uh, and that develops into some sort of a whistling language. Uh, so yeah, it just the, the more you look at it, the more sense it makes for this kind of, uh, of a purpose. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Now, another thing going on with whistled languages is that um, most of them, perhaps all of them, but I'm not sure about that. So I'm going to say at least the vast majority of whistled languages appear to be not wholly independent languages of their own, but whistled versions of spoken languages. Uh, so this was true of all the examples I've talked about before. You know, uh, the Mazateco whistle speech was a whistled variant of the tonal Mazateco language. Uh, Spheria appears to be a whistled system for encoding spoken Greek. The whistle speech system of the Canary Islands called Silbo is a whistled version of Spanish and so forth. And for this reason, one of the main differences in whistled languages appears to be whether they are encoding a tonal language or a non-tonal language. And based on that distinction, the encoding process is different. Tonal languages tend to be whistled in a way that preserves the tones of the spoken words. And in the last episode, we talked about uh, tonal languages. Tonal languages, where you know the the syllables of the words also carry information based on the tone you use when speaking them. So, say like a high high pitched version of the syllable ma means something different than a lower pitched version of the syllable ma, or an up gliding tone on that syllable and so forth. Like the tone of the syllable actually makes a difference. Uh, non-tonal languages are not like, so in, in English, we, we don't encode much information into the tones of syllables. It's just like, what are the vowels and consonants? Yeah, the, the, the tone can contain some information, but not nearly to the, to the extent that you find in true tonal languages. Right, no, it's not not lexical information, more like mm -hmm. uh, maybe sort of uh, contextual mood information or inflection, things right. like that. Like the difference between saying, uh, I would like you to walk the dog, and I would like you to walk the dog. Well, that implies that maybe something, the last time the dog was walked, it was not... Uh, it was not good enough, or it was, <laughs> or yeah. maybe you ran the dog, you know, like th that sort of thing. But it doesn't change the actual, yeah, um, uh, information contained in the word. No, it's more like about the uh, implied information about the attitude of the speaker or something. Yeah, or I need you to walk the dog. It implies yeah. <laughs> that maybe you didn't walk the actual dog. Maybe you took some other creature or item from the house with you on the walk instead. Okay, so you got a tonal language, and you want to make a whistled version of that. You, uh, in most cases, it seems like you preserve the tones of the spoken words. Non-tonal languages that have whistled speech uh, tend to involve a sort of a approximation of consonants and vowels, and 
the the Holmes article I mentioned quotes uh, the scholar Julian Meyer explaining that we already use subtle differences in frequencies to distinguish between spoken phonemes, like the differences between certain vowels and consonants. Uh, so think about the vowels E and O. A long E vowel sound has a higher pitch than a long O vowel sound. And if you say them back to back, you can listen to the descending melody of those vowel sounds. E, O, E, O. And in fact, though it's harder to hear at first, the same is sort of true of consonants. Like a T sound contains more high frequencies than a K sound. And these differences can, to some extent, be reproduced in whistles. And uh, so the discussion of this in the article got me thinking about, e even without having an established version of a language like this and without any training, can you sort of attempt to whistle English phrases and have people understand what you're saying? In some cases you can, and I actually tried this out with my wife, Rachel, before we recorded here. I uh, This was a kind of weird exercise, but I was like, uh, hey, can you tell what I'm saying here? And so I tried things like, um, <whistles> which uh, she took a minute on, but decided I was saying, hello, nice to meet you, which is what I was trying to say. Uh, so that one worked. A few other phrases I tried did not work as well. Uh, but the ones that really seemed to work immediately were the ones where it was phrases she had heard me say before, especially when I tried to whistle common phrases that we use with our dog. So, um, <whistles> immediately she heard as all buddy. Um, and th I think this ties into something we've talked about on the show before, the exaggerated musicality that humans tend to use when speaking to babies and pets. For some reason, uh, there may be evolutionary reasons for this, that we, when we speak to cute things that need our care and attention, you know, uh, babies or pets as kind of, it might be creepy to think about them this way, but in, to some extent, kind of psychologically surrogate babies, um, that we, we speak with an exaggerated uh, musicality or tonal variation that we don't use when speaking to adults, and that stereotyped phrases within this kind of highly musical speech are much easier to recognize when you try to whistle them instead of say them phonetically. So, uh, are you going to keep whistling? Have you was it a, was it a big enough success? Oh no, I, I think that would be a horrible idea. <laughs> also, strangely, the dog did not seem to get it. So when when I whistled "Oh, buddy," Rachel could tell what I was saying, but but Charlie did not seem affected. I tried whistling to my cat uh, whilst researching information for for these episodes, and yeah, she didn't care. And, uh, and my wife was like, like you, you can't speak to a cat in, in whistles. You have to use the, the kissy sound. That's what they understand. That's, what, <laughs> that's the language they speak. It is known. But the kissy sound, clicks, I mean, these are, all, these are not too far removed from whistling. Uh, some of these, these type of sounds will come up again later on. Indeed. Now, one of the most interesting lines of thought emerging from all this is that some experts think that studying whistled languages might help us understand the origin of human language as a whole, because, again, some linguists think that these whistled languages could be similar to the first languages that probably emerged in human evolution. Now, why on earth would that be? Well, a couple of thoughts here. Uh, one, I just want to uh, read a passage from uh, the Holmes article in Smithsonian, quote, 
One of the big challenges for uh, of language is the need to control the vocal cords to make the full range of speech sounds. None of our closest relatives, the great apes, have developed such control. But whistling may be an easier first step. Indeed, a few orangutans in zoos have been observed to imitate zoo employees whistling as they work. When scientists tested one ape under controlled conditions, the animal was indeed able to mimic sequences of several whistles. Okay, so that's one line of evidence. It seems that our closest biological relatives are better able to imitate and reproduce sequences of whistled tones than they are to imitate and reproduce uh, vocal phonemes like we make with speech. But there's another similarity. What is whistled speech especially good for? It's communicating across distance, and as I mentioned earlier, especially in the densely vegetated contexts for hunting and fishing. And in these cases, some, but not all, of course, but some whistled languages tend to rely more on kind of formulaic sentences, like, you know, go that way, go toward it, etc., than, uh, than on like full lexical representation, which is also commonly thought to be how languages first emerged, that there were probably stereotyped signals, you know, a, a sort of more limited range of signals and ideas that you could express with sound that carried common meanings before there was like a complete and endlessly variable lexicon where you could make a sentence meaning anything. Mm-hmm. However, uh, I think it's important to point out that even if it's true that these uh, whistled languages might have some things in common with the earliest proto-languages, that does not mean that today's whistled languages are descended from any hypothetical whistled proto-languages. Uh, because if there were whistled proto-languages, they long ago turned into speech, and then you know many thousands of years passed, and then that speech, in some cases, transformed back into a whistled variant. Yeah, so so sort of imagining like just the the basic sounds one could make and how one might draw from that palette to communicate things. Mm-hmm. Some of those sounds become encoded. Many of those sounds, if not all of those sounds, then evolve into more complicated forms. Uh, but then we we never completely forget. We never completely abandon these other uh, modes of, of of auditory communication. Where the, the the palette remains there for us to to dip back into. Yeah, yeah. So one last common feature of these whistled languages is that in basically all cases, with maybe a couple of exceptions, their use is declining. Most of them are disappearing, and so we might wonder why. Well, uh, several causes are cited in, in the Holmes article. One is, strangely, roads. You tend to find whistle speech only in places that are very remote, uh, and that apparently the presence of well-paved roads tends to cause whistle speech to fall into disuse. Now, you can imagine that could be for a couple of reasons. One could be well-paved roads to a place increase the connection of that place to the rest of the world. So just sort of uh, in in the same way that sort of connection to global culture would cause the would tend to cause the disuse of all types of local customs, and so the whistle speech would just be one of them. But another reason I could think of is that, like we were saying earlier, a lot of the use for whistle speech tends to be communicating across distances that are difficult or time-consuming to traverse. And if you make it easier to get from place to place in a shorter shorter amount of time, there's probably just less incentive to whistle across great distances. 
Yeah, yeah. I also imagine that it's it's quite useful in communicating with the not yet seen. Uh, so if you're if you're having to travel traverse a distance and there are no roads involved, there's no you know reasonably fast travel. There's going to come a point where you're approaching somebody and maybe you can't even see them yet, and it might be nice to just sort of check in with them. Into uh, like if, and and the mere fact that they can they can speak the whistle language like gives you a certain amount of information. Uh, on top of anything they provide then via the whistling. Yeah. Another hypothesized explanation for the decline of whistle speech, especially in places maybe like uh, Brazil and Central Africa, densely vegetated areas, is that deforestation seems to be playing a role in eliminating it, uh, but mainly by eliminating one of the types of environmental pressure that tends to motivate its use in the first place, which is the need to coordinate um, hunting and other survival subsistence activities within thick forest. Remember the uh, the motivations, the sort of bioacoustic motivations we talked about earlier. But despite these pressures, uh, these languages don't have to disappear. I was reading about there, there are efforts in some places to uh, to like set aside special uh, attention and care to preserve them. I believe in the Canary Islands, the whistle speech is like uh, is to some extent being taught in schools to to help preserve it. And obviously, that could be uh, could be instituted in other areas as well. Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, it's wonderful that there are these these efforts to keep it alive. Because of course, once once a, a language is no longer properly spoken, it becomes so much harder to bring it back. Uh, not to say that it can't be, uh, but uh, you know, but but clearly, like holding on to languages, uh, keeping them alive are, are important. Even 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 when they are not, uh, uh, you know, the traditional spoken languages, uh, but they are these whistling tongues. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. However, despite all this talk we've been using about how whistles can be used just like speech to encode mundane information to just transmit information between people there's another way of understanding whistling one that goes i think way back and you know has been around uh, since ancient times that whistling is also uh, it, it has a kind of power and that whistling is different than normal speech and that in many ways it may be kind of divine or may have a may bring a magical danger with it yeah, this if you've listened to everything we've discussed so far, you might you might be inclined to think, well, whistling, sometimes we do it, sometimes it's useful. Uh, but that's it. We never have any additional uh, values added to it. It's never infernal or celestial. It's never vulgar or um, or, so, or anything of that nature. Uh, but of course, this is this is far from from the truth. Uh, there's this deep well uh, across pretty much every culture here we can look to where whistling has some sort of added meaning. It takes on various. Uh, supernatural tones, and some of these we'll we'll get into more in uh, the next episode. But I wanted to dive in, sort of, almost really just go right to the deep end and dive into this subject of transcendental whistling, uh, particularly Chinese transcendental whist- whistling. But this is a topic that also has connections to uh, some other areas. So uh, th- this should this should be a fun journey we'll take. And then again, come back in later and discuss. Uh, some more examples of whistling in Chinese culture uh, uh, from a broader standpoint, as well as uh, a great number of whistling-related superstitions that involve everything from you know ghosts and monsters to more sort of societal pressures. Take me there. Yeah, this brings us to the topic of Chengshao, which I believe translates to something like lengthy, always, or forever whistling. 
It's an ancient Taoist practice that involves the use of long, drawn-out whistling as a means of cultivating and balancing one's vital force, or qi. And I think that just that, that, that one nugget of information there, like, I, I feel like that kind of balances well with sort of a broader experience of whistling. There is something about whistling that certainly takes you out of, um, out of your thoughts and kind of puts you in the now. Mm. Like even if, you're just fo- if you were to say sit there and focus on whistling a single tone and sort of concentrate on it without even you know, bursting into song and so forth. Uh, yes, I would agree with that. And I guess one of the first things that comes to my mind is that whistling seems very similar to breath. And of course, many mm-hmm. uh, sort of traditional uh, meditation practices involve manipulation of breath in one way or another. That seems to have some kind of um, power of focusing in the mind in a certain way or unfocusing the mind, if you want, uh, that uh, the control of breath is like that. And I guess in a way, though, um, speech is also control of breath. So I'm not sure why it's that different, but it it seems uh, a different kind of control of breath that's more akin to the the slow, steady breathing exercises that you would be more likely to find in a meditative practice. Yeah, sometimes this whole sort of suite of ideas is sometimes referred to as, as like breath magic, um, mm. and and yeah, I think you could you could throw whistling in there, but also some of the various sounds that are made in meditative breathing practices, such as Om, uh, mm. such as uh, oh, there are also various meditation practices where the exhale takes on more of the form of a of, a, of an animal noise, like a roaring, mm. etc. But uh, but yeah, in this case, yeah, we definitely are talking about some form of of breath magic, and uh, the the Cheng Shao it frequently pops up in Chinese literature. With one classic example being Rhapsody on Whistling by Qing Gong Sai, who uh, lived two thirty one through two seventy three. It's too long of a work to read here in full, but but key passages about whistling as a practice of the uh, secluded gentleman uh, are as follows. I'm going to skip um, over many lines here, so this is not a full experience of the translated text. Distancing himself from the exquisite and the common, he abandons his personal concerns. Then, filled with noble emotion, he gives a long-drawn whistle. He sends forth marvelous tones from his red lips and stimulates mournful sounds from his gleaming teeth. The sound rises and falls, rolling in his throat. The breath rushes out and is repressed, then flies up like sparks." The whistle floats like a wandering cloud in the Grand Empyrean, uh, and I'm told, aka, this is the, the transcendental void, and gathers a great wind for a myriad miles. When the song is finished and the echoes die out, it leaves behind a pleasure that lingers on in the mind. Indeed, whistling is the most perfect natural music, which cannot be imitated by strings or woodwinds. For every category, he has a song. To each thing he perceives, he tunes a melody. Oh, that's great. That that gives me chills, dude. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this this is the the copy of the text I was looking at is in 1994's The Columbia Anthology of Traditional Chinese Literature and uh, sinologist Victor H. Mayer provides some additional details on what is being described here. So he describes the the Chinese transcendental whistling as being, quote, a kind of nonverbal language with affinities to the spiritual aspect of meditation. So it's a tool of the individual for self-cultivation in search of enlightenment and is mentioned in appendices to the classic of changes or the I Ching. Okay. 
So uh, we actually, I think we did an episode on the I Ching a long time ago. Uh, we did, yeah. Was that like three or four years ago now? Maybe so. Yeah, it would be, I, I think it was pre-pandemic, yeah. So the mind controls the breath, and with his breath, he whistles, and with his whistle, uh, well, here, here's another quote from Mayer. Quote, from any given point of view, each object or situation fits into a category for which there is a corresponding hexagram. Each hexagram consists of yin and yang lines, which may be interpreted as patterns of sound. These are the songs. So whenever the whistler perceives something, he immediately transposes it into a melody. With his control of the vital breath, he can manipulate these sounds and thereby control any phenomena. So I'm trying to remember the, the, the I Ching, of course, contains the hexagrams, but I'm trying to remember the significance of the hexagrams beyond the divination purpose of the I Ching. Um, do, do you recall more than I do here? Well, I think the main thing to keep in mind is that these different he- these hexagrams come together and they mean things and then they mean things in particular sequences. Mm-hmm. And so I think for our purposes here, we might think of these as being sort of an encoding of reality, mm-hmm. and then the whistle here, the, the the Chinese transcendental whistling can be used as a way first of sort of meeting the coded reality, but then also controlling the encoded reality. And it, it is said that the whistle alone can, can, quote, turn the pure yang hexagram inside out to form the pure yin hexagram. So we're getting into like the vital energies of the universe here. And the idea here is that if, if someone is, is an expert in this, if they know what they're doing, then not only are they sort of confronting reality with the whistle, but then they are, they're able to change things and flip things, alter the universal energy involved in a given uh, situation. Okay, I see. So it's a kind of a, a meaning magic in the same way that language itself sometimes is used. You know, the the traditions that ascribe sort of magical power to certain words or um, or or symbols signifying words, uh, but it's just not the same as the language. It's like an alternate version of meaning magic. Yeah, and and I and I have to to, to stress here. You know, this is we're talking about a this kind of lofty Taoist practice here. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we're we're only sort of loosely describing it, but uh, but I believe this is the gist of it, uh, and the, this is the a way of looking at it that is useful to move forward. And again, we'll come back to perhaps in the next episode, we'll get back into some other uh, traditional Chinese ideas concerning whistling in general, and some of these ideas will sort of flow back into this topic of transcendental whistling. Now, one of the things that I found really interesting about this, this idea of using sound, using the whistle, and then sort of changing something about reality, is that, uh, and, and ultimately the idea of breath, yeah, breath becoming sound, and sound not only describing but transforming something, um, I, this, this stirred something in my memory. So, and, uh, and I think another part was the I Ching connection, because I was reminded of something that Terence McKenna discussed in his book, True Hallucinations, a concept that his brother Dennis, I think, largely contemplated called the psycho-audible warp phenomenon. Hmm. And this is going to also get, you know, we're going from, from, uh, from, from Taoist uh, uh, transcendental practices here into uh, the, the work of Terence McKenna and his brother Dennis. So, um, you know, this is another sort of lofty idea, but it has to do uh, as I've read, it has to do with the tryptamine metabolism and the electrospin resonance of the psilocybin molecule. 
And I don't pretend to understand it entirely, but it does seem to boil down to a sort of voice sound-based manipulation of reality while one is within an altered state of mind. Uh, okay, so I, I when you're talking about McKenna, you never know exactly. It's it's hard to tell exactly how magical he's claiming something. Are they talking about literally actually changing external physical reality by the use of of uh, sounds and 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 hallucinations in the mind? Um, it's <laughs> hard to say, right? I mean, it, it's when with a lot of this kind of stuff one gets the idea of it's like the, the chasing of some sort of a of an idea that it's all about sort of in, uh, you know the ideas coming together things that they've read and 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 taking on new forms within the the psychedelic experience so yeah it's it it's hard to say but uh, i i i was curious on reading somebody else's take on all this so i found a paper titled The Weird Naturalism of the Brothers McKenna by Eric Davis for the International Journal for the Study of New Religions, published in 2016. And this is a, a, an excerpt. This is what, one of the things that Davis says here. Davis writes, quote, Dennis believed that a psychofluid could be generated through the vocal effect he had discovered, a psychoaudible warp phenomenon that generated, quote, a specific kind of energy field that can rupture three-dimensional space. According to this wild theory, the buzz that Dennis heard in his head was caused by the electron spin resonance, or ESR, of the metabolizing psilocybin alkaloids inserting themselves into the base pairs of his neuronal DNA. This sound was picked up and amplified through the antenna created through the similarly resonating harmine alkaloids let loose from the ayahuasca vine that they nibbled. By imitating this sound with his voice, its harmonic frequencies would be canceled out, calling the harmine psilocybin DNA complex to drop into a stable, superconducting, hyperdimensional state with apocalyptic results. Okay, okay. Uh I, I don't want to be unkind, but this reads to me as another one of these cases of somebody who's kind of a psychonaut having a a profound, uh, very personally meaningful, ineffable experience on a psychedelic, and then trying desperately to sort of literally externalize that experience and say, no, it has some kind of literal causative physical reality to it. Yeah, and they're they're. I think that's that's fair, and they're also, of course, again, you go into a psychedelic experience bringing all of these other pre-existing ideas, and certainly mm-hmm. they seem to be tapping into some alchemical concepts as well. Davis says that it's difficult to really figure out what Dennis is getting at here, but there mm-hmm. are a lot of comparisons to the alchemical concept of the philosopher's stone and the creation of this. Uh, I believe the, the the quote from Dennis is quote the ultimate technological artifact. Uh, that would uh, hold a great deal of power over reality, you know, this getting into the apocalyptic results. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, yeah there's, there's, there's more than a little alchemy tied up into this concept. Mm-hmm. Now, the idea of the psychedelic experience in all of this is interesting. And, and elsewhere, uh, McKenna does connect all of this to whistling in a more 
uh, well, I guess, grounded manner. Uh, so this is a quote, I believe this is from one of uh, McKinnon's uh, many talks. He says, quote, ayahuasca is driven by sound, by song, by whistling, and its ability to transform sound, including vocal sound into the visual spectrum, indicates that some kind of information processing membrane or boundary is being overcome by the pharmacology of this stuff, and things normally experienced as acoustically experienced become visibly beheld, and it's quite spectacular, unquote. And this would definitely be, I think, an example of of Terrence uh, speaking about something uh, with a little more of the science hat on as opposed to the psychonaut hat. Right. I mean, I think there he's describing the phenomenology of uh, drug-induced synesthesia, the idea that when under the influence of some psychedelics, you can the perception of one normal uh, piece of sense information can can bleed over into another. So, for example, people on certain psychedelics often report being able to like hear colors or see sounds and so forth. Right. Yeah. Now, now getting into what Terence is talking about here concerning ayahuasca. Um, ayahuasca, for anyone unfamiliar, is a psychoactive brew used for ceremonial purposes among various indigenous peoples of the Amazon basin. Taking it can result in an altered state of consciousness complete with hallucinations. And for a little more about whistling and all of this, I turn to a paper. This is a 1971 paper by Fred Katz and Marilyn Dobkin de Rios, published in the Journal of American Folklore. Uh, again, this is 1971, and it's titled Hallucinogenic Music, an Analysis of the Role of Whistling in Peruvian Ayahuasca Healing Sessions. Hmm. And in it, the authors point out that drug-induced states and music tend to go hand-in-hand in in traditions around the world uh, that involve psychoactive substances. Uh, They're talking about religious traditions here, but I think this this also carries on into modern psychedelic culture as well. Uh, Only ancient societies, they didn't have Steve Roach albums to listen to. They couldn't just play something on their iPhone. They had their traditional musical instruments. They had their voices they had their songs, and they had their whistles. Yeah, I, I think it is totally not an accident that psychedelic drugs are widely associated with music in the 20th century. I, I don't think that's a coincidence because, I don't know, because the Grateful Dead was a band instead of visual artists or filmmakers or something. I mean, I, I think that there is sort of an inherent connection between psychedelics and music that, that the altered state of consciousness for some reason, is very well complemented by music. Uh, we, I don't know, uh, the patterns created by music tend to be very pleasing to people in in uh, altered states of consciousness, and uh, and it's sort of a feedback loop too, right? That there's there's this idea that people on psychedelics often enjoy listening to music, but also want to create music. Yeah, I mean, the, the psychedelic experience can change the way the music is heard, the way it's interpreted, and so forth. And they get into this a little bit in the paper. They describe the use of whistling incantations with these ayahuasca ceremonies, uh, which are thought to allow one to evoke the, 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 the spirit of the vine for healing purposes. And they point out that on one hand, the uses of sacred music in, a, in these sorts of situations, this is not all that different from the use of, say, Gregorian chant in medieval Christianity. You know, we, we also do, we can't, we can't go into a scenario like this and forget that music on its own is already this powerful thing that that alters thought um, you know and can can make minds work in unison with each other but mm-hmm. we do have the added psychedelic factor here to take into account um, and uh, and and this is where, where it gets perhaps a little more interesting with the ayahuasca scenario 
They write, quote, such phenomena as the slowing down or changing of time perception must be related to how music is perceived by the individual under the effects of pow- powerful alkaloids, harmine, and harmaline present in the ayahuasca potion. The number of metronomic markings listed earlier, the paper includes some sheet music notations of the whistling, may not indeed be perceived as they would in an ordinary state. So that's worth thinking about the idea of of music that is is not only uh, not not only is it interesting when it is heard during this particular altered state of consciousness, but it is created to be heard in this altered state of consciousness. Mm, yeah, well, I, I would say that that there are other parallels to modern popular music there. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- what would you say about uh, genres of music that are most often associated with psychedelic uh, experiences? I would say they tend to be more sort of uh, meandering and repetitive. And I think that's because, you know, like jam bands and stuff or, mm-hmm. or stoner metal or any of those things, that they tend to create these um, – patterns that repeat a lot and are are less uh, tight and focused than say a normal two and a half minute pop song uh, and that has that clearly has something to do again with the phenomenology of the psychedelic experience that there's something about like sort of getting into a state of mind and lingering there and maybe changes in the perception of of time and patterns and stuff yeah that's a, that's a good point about the repetition because you think uh, you can think of various rather different genres of popular music today that have strong connections to uh, like psychedelic drug culture uh, things as as different as say psytrance and say doom metal you know uh, mm-hmm. you wouldn't mistake one for the other but when you get into like long uh, uses of repetition there are similarities there but so, okay, that's music specifically and why certain kinds of music might traditionally be associated with these ceremonies that involve psychedelics. But like, what, what about the specific characteristics of whistling would come in? Right. So uh, to bring us back to this ayahuasca scenario, you have someone taking the ayahuasca, beginning to have this experience, and they're being guided by a shaman. The shaman is using whistling as part of their guidance. So uh, the authors point out in the 71 paper, the music seems to have an effect on the visuals that the individual under the influence of ayahuasca uh, reports, and that the shaman leading the ceremony and guiding the individual through the experience will alter their use of melodies as needed. Needed, such as uh, one example being in response to the patient, uh, uh, the individual taking the, that has taken the, the drug, experiencing nausea or uh, or vomiting. Uh, different melodies are said to evoke different sorts of visions, and the music, the whistling, is said to help push the individual past the nausea, nausea past the vomiting, past initial anxiety that is a part of the, uh, the the experience, and into the desired alternate state that is often said to sort of exist beyond uh, the nausea, beyond the vomiting, beyond the initial like physical reaction uh, to the substances. I wonder if the specific potency of whistling there, and not just any type of singing or drumming or anything like that, uh, it might have something to do with the specific bioacoustic properties of whistling that we talked about earlier, like mm-hmm. the ability of whistling to cut through other ambient sounds and to, to use a music engineer's term to cut through the mix yeah. uh, in a way that many other types of, of naturally produced music wouldn't say, you know, singing or drumming or whatever. 
Yeah, yeah, because you can imagine the scenario where the shaman is is having to cut through probably quite a bit. I mean, obviously, this is not something that this experience is likely not taking place in an urban environment. But there, there may be the sounds of of nature outside of the enclosure that one is uh, having this experience mm-hmm. in. There may be other, you know, uh, sounds within the um, uh, the enclosure, uh, and of course, there is the, the the physical experience that's going on that can, that would be quite distracting. And here is the shaman with this. Whisper Soul, this music that is cutting through all of that. Mm-hmm. Or to cut through hallucinated sounds. That's true, yeah. Uh, I thought there's one more quote from the paper here that I thought was key. Quote, It is possible that the patient's augmented suggestibility encounters in the presence of the healer a creative source and origin of music, which alleviates anxiety, tranquilizes, and causes a turning inward by the musical evocation of particular visions. Hmm. And so that turning inward reminds me uh, uh, once more of those descriptions of Chinese transcendental whistling and uh, the inward journey there. So uh, in, in a way, I kind of feel like it comes comes full circle there. Um, so uh, you know, so so th- this is all I think accounts for a handful of of probably. Um, extreme examples of, of whistling uh, that is not mundane, whistling that takes on this heightened meaning, uh, be, be that heightened meaning uh, reliant upon some sort of a, a psychoactive property or merely just uh, some sort of an intense thought process and meditation ritual. Yeah, so I was just looking back at those lines you quoted from the Rhapsody on Whistling, the, the translation of it. Um, and, uh, so I'm thinking about that with reference to the psychedelic experience, which, you know, in, in many cases I think is thought to be largely associative that a big characteristic of, of the religious psychedelic experience is maybe, um, forming associations between things in the mind where the cause of that association is not obvious or is not, uh, literal. And, uh, to that point, I think of the line in the Rhapsody that says, uh, for every category, he has a song to everything he perceives, he tunes a melody. Uh, the idea that there are certain whistles or, or or sequences of whistles, maybe like tunes connected to ideas, even though there there's no way that that tune that you just whistled actually means a leopard or actually means a house or means a tree. But for some reason in your mind, suddenly it does. And in fact, the same thing is true of language. That's, you know, one of the mm-hmm. weird fundamental features of language when you stop to think about it is that the word tree has nothing to do with the tree the the association that you make between them is is purely a learned association that it's not to be found anywhere in nature the same would be true of the melody yet for some reason in your mind you you kind of create a language that suddenly that melody means the concept yeah, so I think on one hand, these examples are, are the extreme, but they also do get to, to some of the, the, the core realities of whistling that we've been discussing all along. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, this, is, this has been a fascinating journey thus far, and we're not done yet. We have so much more to discuss in the next episode. We're going to get into whistling in antiquity, uh, basic questions like, did the ancient Romans whistle? Well, it's it's a more complicated question than you might think, um, as well as what happens when God whistles? <laughs> oh, God! The whistling, the whistling, uh, and the divine. Yes, that that also that was a whole question that took me off guard. But that'll be fun to discuss as well. Also, I think we want to talk some about the psychology of whistling that might mm-hmm. further inform some of the discussions we've had today. Yeah. All right. Well, we were, we hope that you're enjoying this uh, this journey as much as we are, and of course, we'd love to hear from everybody because uh, whistling is something that that 
all or, or most of you are, are somewhat familiar with it. You're going to have particular connections to it in general or specific connections even to some of the traditions that we've discussed here. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. So definitely write in about your whistle and the, the whistling of others. In the meantime, new episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, the core episodes, publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact. On Mondays, we do listener mail. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.